Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Hey, Courtney. As always, it's good to be back chatting with you about the subject of systemic racism in America's social institutions. I am glad to be back to share this time with you and our listeners once again. Well, you know what? It's probably a good time to remind our audience what we're talking about when we use the term systemic racism. Yep, it never hurts to do a little reviewing. That's what you always would tell your students. So here we go, class. Systematic Systemic institutional racism is any prejudice against someone because of their race when those views are reinforced by systems of power. And we know power is the operative word. Systems of power are patterns, procedures, practices, and policies that operate within social institutions so as to consistently penalize, disadvantage, and exploit individuals who are members of non-white racial ethnic groups. Today, we're going to jump into the social institution of healthcare. It's a big topic, Courtney. So just like we did with the criminal justice system, we're going to do several episodes on it. I feel a trend coming on here, but (laughs) there's so much to cover and so much to share. I know we can't keep it to just one episode, so I'm here for it. And just like we always do, our information comes from well-researched books, recent news articles, and research studies. The book that springboards today's topic is Harriet A. Washington's book, titled Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present. Courtney, this is going to be a heavy subject. Even the book title is scary. I've said it before. I am a fan of horror movies, but what I have read and researched, especially in this book, put Saw, Hostel, all those movies to shame. It is, it gives, it's giving me nightmares. Oh, I'll tell you what, and I hate that it's giving you nightmares because really we have great respect for folks in the medical profession. In fact, my stepdaughter is an outstanding pediatrics nurse, but you and I both know that good people can work in systemically racist institutions and the healthcare profession is no exception. I agree 100%. I am married to a wonderful man who works in the mental health field, and I know how important mental health is. Uh, So I have so much love for healthcare workers and frontline workers, but the history of the atrocities against Black African Americans is something we must bring to people's attention. In 1966, Martin Luther King spoke at the Medical Committee for Human Rights, and he declared, of all forms of inequality, injustice in healthcare is the most shocking and inhumane. 
I could not agree with Dr. King more. We have only to look at the disproportionate impact the current COVID-19 pandemic is having on the Black African American community to know that Dr. King's words are still true. Now, here's a term for you, my dear niece. Do you know what a Mississippi appendectomy is? Sadly, and Carol, I do. It is either a hysterectomy or sterilization done to a patient without their consent. And it was the very procedure that put a fire into civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer. You are right. That's what started her on her stellar career as a voting rights activist. Sadly, Black African Americans and other marginalized groups have been victims of unwanted medical procedures, experimentation, and poor health care for centuries. That is a, a fact that I think if anybody learned that, especially those in the medical field, would be shocked to hear. Now, most people are familiar with the Tuskegee experiment that went on from 1932 to 1972, in which the Public Health Service tracked about 600 low-income Black African-American men in Tuskegee, Alabama. Yes, I recall that study in which men were unknowingly allowed to go untreated for syphilis just so researchers could track the natural course of the disease. And the crazy part is the researchers already knew how syphilis developed over time. So the study was not only unethical, but it was unnecessary. Who knows how many innocent, unsuspecting family members were also exposed to that horrible disease. Damning as that study was, Harriet Washington's book describes thousands of cases in which Black African Americans were victimized for the sake of medical research, beginning as far back as colonial times, enslaved people were regularly used as specimens to try out surgical techniques without anesthesia, transplants, and risky medical treatments, and exper experimental uh, medications. You're so right, Courtney. As we move into the 20th century, the experimentation didn't stop. When scientists began testing the powers of the atom, Black African-American men were subjected to medical experiment experimentations, such as injecting them with high doses of plutonium to see how their organs would react. What plutonium, like scary plutonium? The very same. So, that's crazy. Sometimes men, the men were prisoners who didn't know they were being given lethal materials or they agreed to be test subjects only to get their sentences reduced. Yeah, that's a type of coercion, I would say. Now, even children weren't safe. Uh, Washington described in her book several instances in which children, particularly young boys, were administered experimental drugs, had unnecessary surgeries, including brain surgery, and psychological abuses, most of these done without parental consent or the consent had been coerced. And that coercion came in the guise of threatening their parents or guardians with the loss of welfare benefits or social services if they refused. That is correct. And it's almost unbelievable, but it happened. I think you actually have a story that relates to these examples, and it falls under the heading of eugenics. And that was a movement begun by Francis Galton, a cousin of the notable Charles Darwin. 
Yes, eugenics was a faulty science that proposed society could use medical information about disease and trait inheritance to end its social ills by encouraging the birth of children with good health and beautiful traits. Correct. And at the same time, the eugenicist encouraged weeding out undesirable societal elements by discouraging or preventing the birth of children with quote-unquote bad genetic profiles. Now, highly educated persons of good social class were considered eugenically superior. So that meant poor, uh, uneducated, those that were incarcerated, recent immigrants, and the so-called feeble-minded, as well as Black African Americans, were considered eugenic misfits. Yep, if you let the eugenicists tell it. So how does this fit with the story you're bringing us today? Well, Ann Carol, I have one of the most harrowing stories that I think I've brought to you or our listeners. And it hurts me to my heart because the lady that I'm going to tell everyone about is around the age of my mom, you, and my aunts as well. It's the story of Elaine Riddick. Okay, well, let's hear it. The story begins on an unseasonably cold day in Raleigh, North Carolina. January 23rd, 1968. Five men met in the state education building. Now, these five men who sat around this table were all members of the North Carolina Eugenics Board. Their job was to consider the latest request for sterilization and asexualization surgeries. A folder among them was case number eight. It was labeled N for Negro, it stated the county and the person's name, and that was Elaine Riddick. Now, these, to these five men, Elaine was just one of a number, one of a number of cases that they would be deciding that day. It was their decision on who could have children and who couldn't. In their minds, it was for the good of the state and even more sinisterly, for the good of the race. So how did we get here? Well, between 1929 and 1974, North Carolina State Eugenics Board sterilized over 7,000 people, 5,000 of which were Black. Now, Duke professor William Darity Jr. wrote a, re a published report that showed the correlation between unemployed Black people and the number of sterilizations done during the 10-year period of 1958 to 1968. He concluded that these sterilizations were no more than an attempt to breed out the Black population of North Carolina. Wow, that's called genocide. That is called genocide. Even the UN states that something of that nature where you wipe out a, a race of people in that way is genocide. It's a scary thought to think of five men that you would never meet held your reproductive future in their hands. But that was the case for 13-year-old Elaine. Now, Elaine was born to a mo her mother, Perlene, and her father, Thomas. Thomas was a World War II veteran who suffered from PTSD. And he and her mother, and her mother, Perlene, had a very abusive relationship. Now, and that was fueled by alcohol. Now, when Elaine's mother was sent to prison for assaulting her father, Elaine and her siblings, there were 
eight of them, seven girls and one boy, were sent to live with their grandmother, who was affectionately known by everyone by the name of Miss Peaches. Now, she lived in a small two-bedroom home, but it varied between 10 to 15 people all crammed in there together. Now, she made ends meet how she could, um, even though she did not work and she was illiterate. She did supplement her income um, by doing different things around the neighborhood with public assistance and food stamps. Now, despite being very loved by her grandmother, and um, Elaine and her siblings were often unsupervised, and teachers noticed that they often came to school in the same clothes day after day, which no doubt, and Elaine did attest to this, made her a target for bullies, which caused her grades to slip and for her to skip school. Now, one sad Sunday in 1967, something tragic happened to Elaine. Coming home from a party, a neighborhood man, a 23-year-old man from her neighborhood, uh, sexually assaulted her and threatened her and her family with violence if she ever told. So, yeah, so Elaine just went home and stayed silent. Now, back to those men sitting in that room on that cold January day in 1968. They had two files, uh, two file reports on Elaine in front of them, one by a clinical psychologist by the name of Helton McAndrew and another by the family social worker, Marion Payne. Now, a thing about the social workers, they were the ones who were most responsible for giving the recommendation for sterilization. So keep that in mind. Now, only a few weeks before Elaine's assault on her way home, she met Dr. McAndrew. And in his report said that um, Elaine's, and her middle name was Dolores, so he used her full name, Elaine Dolores Riddick. Her chief problem was a poor home life. And he concluded that he expected her to perform more than adequately in a in an improved environment. So and what he, did that mean? More what was he suggesting? Well, he suggested that Elaine's irritability and antisocialness came from being embarrassed about her clothing and often coming to school hungry. Um, she fell behind in her grades, but in a better home life, he could certainly see that her dream of going to college and becoming a nurse could definitely be achieved. Okay, well that makes sense. Now, social worker Payne had a more grim outlook on Elaine. He had reported in his report that neighborhood people had seen her wandering around the neighborhood unsupervised at night and often. He said that she was already deemed feeble-minded by a doctor. Now, in his, these are his exact words from the report. Because of Elaine's inability to control herself and her promiscuity, sterilization would be the best option. This would at least prevent additional children from being born to this girl who cannot care for herself and could never fully function as a parent. So where do the parents and adults come in? Well, the parents and adults, they are there, but they're given a little bit of false information. I'm glad you asked that question. Now, three weeks before uh, the board saw Elaine's case, Elaine's father signed a document for a procedure for his daughter, but he didn't even have custody of Elaine. 
And her grandmother had a meeting with the social worker who just shoved a piece of paper in her face and said, your granddaughter needs this procedure and you need to sign your mark, which was an X because she was illiterate, or we're going to take away your benefit. So that means the grandchildren couldn't eat. She couldn't eat. So she, and she wanted to get her granddaughter help. So she signed away Elaine's reproductive rights, thinking she was doing the right thing. Well, that social worker was terribly threatening. I would say he was not only threatening Elaine, but the entire family by taking away their benefits. And that was a very common tactic used in this type of sterilization in Black African-American families. Mm. Mm. Now, based on the information sat before them, the men in room 539 decided that Elaine's first child, who affectionately would become to be named Tony, would be her last child. Tony was born on March 5th, 1968, and all Elaine remembers is waking up in a lot of pain and very confused. She was wrapped in bandages and did not have her baby. The doctors told her that she had a severe infection and she would have to stay in the hospital another week. Now, despite her best efforts of feeding, clothing, and diapering Tony, at the age of 14, her grandmother said thought she was too young and would do better going to New York while Tony stayed in North Carolina under his great-grandmother's care. But it would be another four years until Elaine learned what had been done to her body. Oh, boy. Well, Courtney, as a woman, what you're telling us is deeply troubling. It's hard to believe this went on in our own country and with the government sanction. It's definitely time for a break so we can digest all of this. Okay, Courtney, we're back and I'm on pins and needles to hear about what happened to Elaine and how this all uh, comes to a conclusion and uh in my mind, I can't imagine that it's going to be a good one. But before you finish, I want to remind our listeners, if they want to take a deeper dive into understanding systemic racism in America, they can go to our website, www.whyaretheysoangry.com, for more information and to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. Oh, and by the way, if you like our podcast, please leave a comment and consider giving us a five-star rating. So where does the story go from here? Well, at the age of 18, Elaine got married. And like most newlyweds, they dreamed of having a family. Now, a lot of couples do struggle. Nobody gets it right often on the first try. But as they began to struggle, Elaine's husband began to get angry with her. He couldn't understand why friends and families were having kids and, and moving on to that next stage of life as parents. And he and Elaine could not get pregnant. Elaine couldn't explain it either. Her husband began cruelly taunting her by calling her cursed and telling her that she was a barren woman. At a doctor's visit at the age of 19, that is when Elaine found out what happened to her. The doctor examined her and he simply said, whoever did this to you, butchered you. Whoa. Now, even sadder than that, he, they let her know that she would never be able to have any more children. Although this news was heartbreaking, it confirmed several other issues and problems that Elaine had experienced throughout her youth and into her adulthood. 
Now, it did cause her marriage to end. Now, in 1973, the Women's Rights Project, under the direction of who we call the notorious RBG herself, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, filed a suit against the state of North Carolina on the behalf of the victims of the North Carolina sterilization program. But the issue was they had, they needed more plaintiffs to testify. So Elaine stepped up. She shook off what she called a hibernation and she was ready for a fight. All right, go Elaine. Now on January 18th, 1974, the ACLU filed a suit in the U.S. District Court against the members of the State Eugenics Commission, the local social workers, and the hospitals where Elaine's operation was performed. Elaine was seeking a million dollars in damages, which I think is more than fair. Mm. But it would be nine years before it would even go to trial. Wow. I'll tell you, talk about uh, the the wheels of justice turning slow. Exactly. Now, in the meantime, Elaine did succeed with graduating from high school, and she even graduated from college. Now, for that eugenics board, it was dissolved in 1977. That's not that long ago, Courtney. 1977? 1977. But the testimony in Elaine's case didn't begin until 1983. I was one years old. This started in 1968 and testimony didn't even start until I was one years old. Oh, this dragged on way too long. Way too long. Now, when Elaine's attorneys challenged the need for the sterilization, they were met with pushback. They were told that they were doing the surgery and it was in her best interest. And she invited the sterilization, which makes no sense at all. They said it was in her best interest. And the the attorneys even said that they uh, talked about sterilizing girls even before puberty. Mm, That is, that's outrageous. That is just outrageous. And we talk about Nazi Germany. I think we have one up on them. The eugenics board in North Carolina wasn't dissolved until 1977. That's not that long ago. Not that long ago. And even more frightening is that testimony for Elaine's case didn't begin until 1983. I was one years old. This whole ordeal began with her surgery in 1968 And her testimony for justice didn't begin until I was already in this world. Wow. Again, the wheels of justice turning slowly. Attorneys for the state, so the eugenics board, claimed that the sterilizations were done on the behalf of Elaine. And it was based on the information that they were provided. Now, that provided information was that she was feeble-minded and promiscuous and she would never be a good parent. But that was not true. Now, on day two, Elaine was allowed to testify, despite the attempts from the attorneys for the state to bar bar her. She told the jurors that she was sexually assaulted, and the reason why she lied, which promoted the promiscuity to be put into her file, is because she was afraid something was going to happen to her family. She refuted the doctor's testimony that said that the procedure was explained to her and her family. She disputed that it was she even consented to it. 
she said that she felt like less of a woman because of what her state, North Carolina, did to her. I can imagine. Well, actually, no, I cannot. This is unimaginable. The trial ended on January 19th, 1983. It took the jury 45 minutes to render its verdict, and it determined that Elaine's rights had not been violated in any way. Hmm. The the ACLU tried to take the case to the Supreme Court, but they wouldn't hear it. So Elaine just gave up. She moved on with her life. She and her son moved to Atlanta and she moved in with her younger sister. It wasn't until 2002 when I was 20 years old. So this is longer. 2002 (laughs) that an expose by the Winston Salem journal called against their will brought Elaine's story to the spotlight. So the media uh, makes its case. Thank goodness for the media. Exactly. Now, another time jump to March 2011. Then-Governor Beverly Perdue created a five-member task force to review the eugenics practices in North Carolina in a public hearing. At that point, Elaine and her now adult son, Tony, stepped up to the mic, and Elaine asked and answered a very powerful question. It's not what you think I'm worth. It's what I think I'm worth. There's nothing the state of North Carolina can do to justify what they did to me. Truer words were never spoken. Now, Elaine, right now, she's 66 years old. She's a grandmother to Tony Jr., and she still fights to this day um, for those who have been forcibly sterilized against their will. Now, in 2013, the General Assembly of North Carolina passed an appropriations bill to give $50,000 in compensations per person to the individuals who were sterilized by the eugenics board. But as of now, less than 400 people have received those payments. There's a lot of red tape and a lot of he said, she said, we didn't do going on. But it's, I'm glad to hear that Elaine is still active and still working for people who experienced what she did. I am happy too, and I am happy you brought this story to us because what you've described is wrong on so many levels, Courtney. To me, the settlement of $50,000 doesn't come close to remedy how those individuals are harmed. Now, this story is one of many that exposes why Black African Americans historically may avoid seeking routine medical treatment and are reluctant to participate in clinical drug trials and medical studies. That's right. Black African-American men in particular have the worst health outcomes of any major demographic group. And the research ties those results to their mistrust of the medical profession based on the legacy of mistreatment and discrimination. Now, what we've shared today is definitely heavy-duty stuff. Where might someone go or turn to if these things are going on today? If you want to see it, say it, and confront systemic racism in the healthcare profession, consider visiting the Black Mental Health Alliance. Their mission is to develop and promote sponsor, trusted, culturally relevant educational forums, trainings, and referral services that support the health and well-being of Black people and other vulnerable communities. Yep. 
My dear niece, that sounds like an excellent resource. Listeners can also tap the National Medical Association, which describes itself as the collective voice of African-American physicians and the leading force for parity and justice in medicine and the elimination of disparities in health. Also, most states have special departments that can look into medical misbehavior, and healthcare professional organizations usually have ethics committees for filing complaints. But as we see in Elaine's case, it could be an uphill battle. Very true, but don't stop the fight. Well, Ann Carol, this has been a blockbuster episode, sure to be concluded in, included in many of our medical uh, expose episodes, but there's still so much to talk about. But quickly, I want to give our listeners a chance to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook at Why Are They So Angry? So please like our Facebook group and give us a shout there. Say hello to us on Instagram at Why Are They So Angry? Please tweet us at W-A-T-S-A underscore online. That's our Twitter handle. And of course, the website where you can take the online course, read blogs, and learn more about seeing, saying, and confronting systemic racism at www.whyaretheysoangry.com. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.